0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. This sermon series is called In Season based out of 2 Timothy 4 chapters sorry, chapter 4 verses 1 through 2. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. This assignment that we have been given in the sermon series, according to Vince, is for us to preach out of a set of verses that was particularly meaningful, impactful, encouraging, corrective for us over this past year. Now, as many of you know, uh, I am one of the pastors of this church. We should have all been here so you could see all three of us. You'll know me because I'm the tallest of the three. I also am the one that wears glasses. Okay, so uh, that's just a joke, anyway. So, <laughs> um, but for me, I'm also in my, I suppose, because I'm a professor at Ivy Tech Community College in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, just across the state line on the 275 loop. I also am finishing my Ph.D. in biblical interpretation. So, when you ask me to pick a passage that's been particularly meaningful, impactful, encouraging, or corrective, then I'm just going to hand you the book right back. Okay? And some of you were joking with me that I tend to preach a little bit long, and that's compared to Vince, which is amazing. I didn't realize I talked that much. But I will keep it to one chapter today but sadly panera did not deliver the box lunches so i hope you ate a big breakfast okay now so with that the to turn to our passage we're going to be ezekiel chapter 34 today and the the prompt that i'm speaking from was more of an event or a series of events this past year that were particularly impactful for me in perhaps a negative way, but I'm hoping to turn it to a positive way. I don't know if you have noticed, but the church, like the culture, is at war. We are fighting with one another over issues of little importance. And we are so convinced of our position that we are willing to call our brothers heretics and apostates. So, in light of that, I'm going to turn to a passage that sort of warns us against such things. In this passage, the Lord is speaking to us as shepherds and sheep. So, with Without much delay, let us jump straight into that. So, Ezekiel chapter 34, I'm going to read the entire chapter, and I will be summarizing in the sermon. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God said to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, you wear the wool, you butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals then when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. Because my flock, lacking a shepherd, has become prey and food for every wild animal, and because my shepherds do not search for my flock, and because the shepherds feed themselves rather than my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am opposed or against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will will no longer feed their sheep for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture and their grazing place will be on the Israel's whole lofty mountains. And there they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will seek my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. As for you, my flock, The Lord God says this, look, I am going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Or isn't it enough for you to drink the clear water? Must you also muddy it with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. "See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Since you have pushed with flank and shoulder and butted all the weak ones with your horns until you have scattered them all over, I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself, and he will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous creatures from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. I will make them and the area around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in their season. They will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit, and the land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land." I will not, I will, they will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the power of those who enslave them. They will no longer be prey for the nations, and the wild creatures of the earth will not consume them. They will live securely, and no one will frighten them. They will, I will establish for them a place renowned for its agriculture, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land. They will no longer endure the insults of nations. Then, I will, then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. This is the direct declaration of the Lord God. You are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, blessed be the name of the Lord and his words to us. I don't know if you've noticed, but there was a lot of repeated images in this passage. So that's gonna help us keep it from being a four-hour lecture, again, breakfast. So, So, uh, with that, I'm going to point out today the two roles in church or in our society and the four effects of lingering sin in our community. And when this passage was written, many centuries ago, it was to a people on the brink of destruction on the brink of exile. And I said to my wife this morning, because I made the mistake of looking at Twitter before I came to church today, and I asked her if we are living in the decline of our civilization. Is that why we are so mad at one another? We are seeing the world around us, the church around us, the culture around us, our neighbors and our former friends Falling into destruction, and we are going into cultural exile. Now, many have been proclaiming this in recent years, and often like to call this the culture war. But that does not mean that we are supposed to be at war with our own culture. In fact, I will say that we are not in a culture war. We are in a Christian waning. We have forgotten our first love, as it says in the book of Revelation. We have forgotten what the purpose of our witness was in our society and in our culture. And because of that, we have begun to fight with each other. So I... Preach this message to you, not as one who knows better than you, one who is also suffering in the world in which we live. And one who is weary, worn down by the warfare that is around us. So, let us begin. Notice that there are two sections to the chapter. In verses 1 through 16, we talk about the shepherds. And in verses 17 through 31, we talk about the sheep. And notice that God rebukes both of them. He rebukes both groups. And so it does not matter which group you are in, you are being rebuked. I hope you brought your steel-toed Sunday shoes today Because the Lord and his word are going to be stomping. So let us begin. There are five references to the shepherds and there is no more description of what that means. We are supposed to to understand from the context of the book of Ezekiel, from the context of its place in the history of Israel, who the shepherds were. And obviously they are the religious leaders. The Bible speaks to religious people. It does not speak to every member of the human society in which they live. It speaks to those who wish to hear it. And so he is rebuking the leadership of his people. But he is also rebuking those who are his people who are not in leadership. He calls those his sheep. And notice that he describes them in two different ways. In verse 17, it says, And as for you, my flock, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. And then in verse 20, it says, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Now, this description of the sheep in this way is a not very common Idea that we see in the Bible, it does occur on a few occasions. And some of you have already heard with your New Testament ears some of the parallels I'm going to point out today. Now, he says to the shepherds, I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. This is a very harsh warning. Because you remember, in the time that Ezekiel was written, there are only two offices that are called shepherd. The Messiah prince, the king, and the anointed priest. And both of those are hereditary offices. They are neither elected nor appointed. They are given to you by right of birth. And God says, I the one who gave you and your family, your ancestors and your lineage the right to rule. I'm taking that away now. Woe to us who live in a culture called the church where we are not appointed by our lineage how much more so will the Lord take away our place of leadership if we do not follow his leadership? So no one who is a leader in this church, the church at large or this church here, is exempt from the rebuke of the Lord. And I want to mention here that All of the people who will be preaching in this series, we at this church see as leaders. There is a very slow and methodical process by which you are selected to be a leader in this church. We do not hastily or abruptly or for the purpose of popularity select people to be the leaders of this church. And so we take great diligence to protect you the sheep, from the wicked shepherds. And yet, the wicked shepherds still exist in the church at large. What wounds me so deeply in this past year, what provoked me to preach this message, was watching people who I respected as spiritual fathers and leaders variably Bite each other to death over the political wranglings of our nation. And if some of you thought that you were braiding the whip in the temple with Jesus, as someone I saw on Twitter a couple of days ago saying, be careful that you are not Saul gathering stones for Stephen's execution. You better know which side of the debate you were on. And let me just say that Jesus does not care about our petty fights. He cares about one thing, which is his glory and his kingdom, which are the same thing, and our little machinations in the world are but mist and breath of wind compared to the eternity and the glory which he inhabits forever. So, with that in mind, we should contend for the faith. We should preach the gospel in and season and out of season, being prepared to give an account for the hope that we have. However, however, May I say, boldly, and possibly without humility, your fights are not the gospel. Okay? So, let us then look at the image of those in the flock that are being divided. Now, the image of Rams and goats, like I said, is not a very common one. It occurs in Psalm 50. When it is discussed to, when it is used to describe the separation of the faithful and the wicked. And from there, it's picked up in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, in which Jesus talks about separating the redeemed from those who simply claim to be his follower. And they said to me, But Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he said, But I don't know you. Depart from me into darkness, those who are not mine. Now, the image of the fat and lean sheep has no other direct parallel in all of the scripture, which I find fascinating because it's such an interesting image. Because what has made one sheep fat and another sheep lean is their fight with each other. If you go back to the passage in 17 through 31, the fat sheep have pushed the lean sheep away. They have made it difficult for them to eat and to drink and to be sustained by what the Lord has provided for them. That is why they are lean. And that is why they are fat. That's not unique to just Ezekiel is what I'm saying. That is what has happened every year in every community of faith and it is not right the closest parallel we can find to that image of the fat and the lean sheep and with it a little bit of this idea of the shepherd occurs in Zechariah chapter 11 verses 4 through 17 I didn't tell him to put it up so I'm just going to read it to you the Lord my God says this shepherd the flock intended for slaughter Those who buy them slaughter them, but are not punished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, because I have become rich. Even their own shepherds have no compassion for them. Indeed, I will no longer have compassion on the inhabitants of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, I will turn everyone over to his neighbor and to his king. They will devastate the land and I will not rescue them from their hands. Pretty stark. So I shepherded the flock intended for slaughter, the oppressed of the flock. I took two styles, calling one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month I got rid of sh- three shepherds. I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Zechariah's like cleaning house in the church is what we're saying. Then I said, I will no longer shepherd you. Let what is dying die, and let what is perishing perish, and let the rest devour each other's flesh. If I may make a comment about that. How often have we become weary of doing what is right and to, have decided to just throw our hands up and walk away from the community of faith which we are called to ourselves. That's what we're going to talk about today. Next, I took my staff called favor and I broke it into two, annulling the covenant I had made with all the peoples. It was annulled on that day, so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed me my wages thirty pieces of silver. And throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me, this magnificent price by which I was valued by them. That sarcasm, which I'll explain a second. So I took the thirty pieces of silver, and I threw it to the threw it into the Lord's house to the potter. And then I cut into the staff my second staff called Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord also said to me, Take up the equipment of the foolish shepherd. I am about to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not take care of those who are perishing, and he will not seek the lost or heal the broken. He will not sustain the healthy, but he will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May a sword strike his arm in his right eye. May his arm wither away and his right eye go blind. Now, the 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah is the price of a slave the price of one considered by their society as worthless and subhuman. Here's Zachariah, acting in the role of the Lord as the object lesson, is doing his best to correct the faults of the worthless shepherds around him. In one month, he gets rid of three of them, and they get rid of him because he gets worn out. And he says, I've worked for you one month, pay me what I'm worth, and they say, you're worth nothing. How true, how often it is that we say that to one another in the community, the family, the brother and sisterhood of faith. You are worthless to me. Don't you put the steel toe shoes on. I'm coming. It's coming for you. Verses 12 through 13, and they paid me by wages 30 pieces of silver and I threw it to the potter, is used to describe Judas in Matthew 26 and 27. So just after, in Matthew, Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats those who are his from those who are not his, Judas betrays him for the price of a slave. And then when Judas realizes his error, he, th- he tries to return the money back to the temple. And they say, you can keep your money because you've done what we want you to do. And Judas is left with nothing which is why he kills himself. How often do we treat one another in such a manner that we would say, I've gotten my use out of you. You can go now. And we condemn those who are brothers and our sisters to perdition. How often do we fight with one another over the bountiful blessings of the Lord? Remember, the sheep are pushing on each other so they can get more of the food and the water that God is prodigiously providing for all the sheep. We must Be on guard. What is the error of the shepherds? They do not seek my sheep. They do not gather my flock. They do not protect my people. What is the error of the sheep? They do not provide and protect one another. In the book of James, it says to those who wish to be leaders. James 3, verses one through two. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature and able also to control the whole body. What's interesting to me about that is if you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and you look at the qualifications of deacons and elders, which are the two offices that Paul describes in the book of 1 Timothy. Both of them are described in terms of not their charisma, not in terms of their training, not in terms of anything that we might think of as a flashy super leader in our society. They are Described in terms of their character. And one of the aspects of their character is that they lead their house well. And it goes on to describe. If one cannot lead his own family well, how should we give him the family of the Lord? Now, that said, let me turn to First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25 the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while he is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Remember what the wages of Zechariah were. How much do we value those who labor for those who we are leading us. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm not saying that for you to give Vince or Jordan a raise. I'm saying that because it is hard work to be the shepherd. But it is equally hard work to be a sheep. Returning back to 1 Timothy. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. What he's saying there is that if an elder is found to be an heir, you immediately call them on the carpet in front of the, com- the community. You do not tolerate a sin among the elders. Now I've been dancing around it. I'm not going to embarrass anyone. But this week, there was an accusation made and that was remedied. And why was it remedied? Because of the faithfulness of God's people. And the point of that was not to embarrass the person who made the accusation. The point of that was to say, this community takes grave, severe, severe, action upon any sin of anyone, including and especially the leaders of this church. And if any of them are found to be having sin, you are to call them out. That is my message. Do not hesitate. That is why you don't have to be embarrassed for what you accuse them of. If you see something, say something. Because we are not going to tolerate in this church... Any, any failing or flaw of that shepherd or that sheep that would harm or damage this body. Do you understand me? So you've heard me say it. You'll hear Vince probably say it sometime. Do not hesitate to act because you are protecting your brother, your sister, your fellow member, your fellow sheep from the wicked shepherds of this world. Okay? Okay. It was not in the sermon, but the Lord put that on my heart, and I had to say that, sorry. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice before doing nothing without favor, or without favoritism. Do not be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and do not share in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. I'm going to skip verse 25, or sorry, verse 23, which is parenthetical, uh, Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment. But the sins of others will follow later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Again, I will use my own example. Many of you have known that I have been at this church almost since the beginning. Some of you thought that I was here as one of the charter members. However, I was the first weird dude to walk into this community. And by that I mean... This church was launched about 10 years ago. We celebrated our, our 10th anniversary, I think in January is officially when we launched in 2012. And in September October of 2012, so some nine-ish months later, I literally walked through the door of Mike and Trisha's house, being invited by Vince to come, and everyone looked at me like, who are you? because everyone else had known everyone else from before the launch of the church. And I was the first weird dude. And I was in this church serving faithfully for many years before I was appointed an elder. And I point that out not to say, you've got to put in the work to get to earn the thing. It's not about earning your place. It's about waiting your turn. When God is ready for you to be a leader, he will make you a leader and when he is not ready for you to be the leader yet, you have to be a sheep. Because a good shepherd has always been a good sheep. We are always under authority in the church, right? So we here are a non-denominational church. We don't belong to a denomination. But even within denominational life, you are under authority. And that authority ultimately goes back to the guy who sits on the throne from eternity past to eternity forever. He is the shepherd of his people. We are just his assistant, appointed for a time and for a purpose to guide his people. Right? And that's the problem with the wicked shepherds, is they forgot who they were. They thought they were the big dog in town and that they could do whatever they wanted to. And some of the sheep started looking like the assistant shepherd because they started thinking they were the big dog in town and they could push people around without remorse. So let's dive into the four effects of lingering sin in our church community. That was just page one, okay? Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna try, I'll try to move fast. I'm not going to take too long, but I got to speak what the Lord has me Okay. So <laughs> the first, now some of you will know that I grew up Baptist as my wife. And uh, in the Baptist church, you are taught to alliterate your sermons. So if you were taking notes and you want to know what the letter of the day is, the letter of the day is S, okay? So it's shepherd and sheep, and then it's S's of the four things. Okay, so that's the letter of the day. So the first effect of lingering sin is that we become Selfish. To the shepherd, it is described in verse 3 as You eat the fat, wear the wool, butcher the fat and lambs, but you do not tend the flock. What is the job of a shepherd? Is he supposed to be the taste tester of the people? No. He's supposed to tend the flock. But he's living the high life here, getting all of the benefits without doing any of the work. And to the sheep, in verses 18 through 19, it's described as them. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Must you also mud... Isn't it enough for you to drink the clear water? Must you also muddy it with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what you have trampled and have to drink what your feet have muddied. Now we in the American Western civilization are not familiar with sheep, but they are rather stupid animals. Okay. When the Bible describes you as a sheep, it is not a compliment. Okay? It is an accurate depiction of what you do. Right? Sheep get lost cuz they look at they can only see what they're looking at. They don't see the horizon and they tend to fall off the side of a cliff. And in this passage, they also tend to step on what they're eating. Right? They rub it into the ground with their hooves. Now here, the description is intentional, not accidental. But I want to point that out. Sometimes we mess up with each other and we take grievous offense at a mistake. Let me first call that out and say, some of y'all need to put your big boy or big girl pants on and understand that we are not Jesus and we're going to make some mistakes sometimes, okay? That said, some of y'all need to get your feet out of my food. Okay? Some of y'all are putting your finger in places it does not belong and getting into business that is none y'all. Okay. Now, the response that the Lord has to this selfishness is the opposite, selflessness. In verse 14, I will tend them in good pasture. Their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. And they will lie down in a good grazing place and I will feed them in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. I will establish, this is verse 23. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and he will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken this. And in verse 26 and 27. I will make them and the area around them a blessing. I will send down showers in their seasons. They will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land. Right, so the the description of the good shepherd in this passage is one who tends the flock. That is the job of the leader in the church. Their job is to stop y'all from fighting each other by tending you. Some of y'all don't like that. You don't like that I put my finger into your business and you're saying to me, it's none and I'm saying, that's not what the Lord told me. The Lord told me I'm supposed to tend the flock, which means I'm supposed to mind your business because it's my business. My business is your business, according to the Lord. Now, by that I mean that I'm not going to micromanage you as a leader of the church. But what that does mean is that I'm going to make sure that you are not stepping in other people's food, muddying other people's water, pushing other people around. Do I need to get more specific? I don't think so. Hope not the shepherds among us must tend the flock. That is the one job description we get. If I go back to 1 Timothy, the one description beyond character for the elder is that they teach the word. So when I told you a few minutes ago that I was gonna be stepping on some toes, that is what you do not pay me for I'm not paid here. But that is what I have been commanded to do, okay? So go ahead and take away your tithe and your offering. You don't pay my bills anyway. I'm still going to speak my mind because the Lord told me to do that, okay? Now, with that, I'm not supposed to get off-topic and talk about things that are not from the Lord, mind you. That, if I may be pointed, is the problem with our modern church preaching in many places. We have decided to make the political, the social, the pragmatic, the cultural, the personal, the preferential sacred scripture. And I don't remember Jesus telling me that you get to add books to the big book. This, my friends, is what I'm teaching out of today. And this is the only thing I'm probably ever going to teach out of for you. And I have to bring it to our cultural moment. Because like I said, we don't, you know, shepherd sheep, and so we got to understand what that means. I might need to bring things in as an example, but if I get off topic, I need you to point it out to me. Right? Because the sheep among us must care for each other. That's why I say you have to wait your turn. Not because it's a role that you're supposed to get into. It's because you as the sheep thinking you might be a shepherd one day, need to demonstrate those things before we give you the authority. Right? Because the way we select leaders in this church is that they show themselves worthy of leadership in such a way that many people thought they were already leaders in this church. Right? Which comes back to my story. Some of y'all were probably really surprised when they announced me as a pastor of the church because some of you thought I was already the pastor of a church because I'm the dude that meets you in the front of the building since we got into this building, right? Some of y'all probably didn't know that Jordan is as pastor of church, right? Because he's very humble and meek. He does an excellent job of leading us in worship. That's his role, that's his job. My role is, as my, as my wife would say, is putting out fires, solving the problems, by which I mean when, you know, things happen in this building and Vince or Jordan are primarily busy because they're leading the service, I'm the one running downstairs and helping the bait. And 50% of the time, it's my baby. So it's also my problem. Anyway. So, <clears throat> so I have a wild child, pray for me. Okay, so we, the shepherds among us must tend the flock. The sheep among us must care for each other. In fact, let us turn to the passage in 2 Timothy, chapters three, verses 12 through 17. And I said turn and sorry, you don't actually have to turn. I'm gonna read it to you. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We take that verse and stitch it on a quilt and hang it in our house, and we think that that's what the world is doing to us. I'm just gonna leave that there. Let that just burn, okay. Evil people, here's, what it, here's however what I think he's saying, to Timothy, evil people and imposters will become worse, worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul is saying the call is coming from inside the house for those of you who've seen Scream, right? The killer is already among us. We may as a community of faith be at war with a world trapped in their sin, but the killer is already in the house. The problem is that we need to make sure that we are not stabbing each other in the back when we say that the world is persecuting us. Let me get back to scripture, sorry. (laughs) But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I selected this passage because... This is the charge of Paul to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, your mom and your grandma raised you right. They taught you all of the Bible that they had. And they implanted in you a seed that is now bearing fruit in our generation. But what does he end it with? He doesn't say the leader of God, the elder of God, the deacon of God. He says the man of God. Now, ladies, you're in that too, but he was talking to Timothy. That's why he uses man. Everyone is to be complete, equipped for every good work. How do they get there? They get there because scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. During the time when we, the adults, are in here... The children downstairs are having the seed of God's word sown in their life every week. And that is a very important value that we have at this church. To impart to our children the proper way of going. As, as Paul says to Timothy, you, from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? Right? And there are some of our children who've come in, who come in sort of like mid-cycle, mid-program, right? We're about to have a group of children who have been here since we have had our church for 10 years and and been doing this for a while, who have gone through the the complete cycle about three times. They've gone through all of the Bible stories three times. And there are some who have gone through twice, and some who have gone through once, and some who have not even gone through once. And the point is is to say is that that does not mean that our job is done. Just like we need to continue to sharpen each other just because you age out of children's church does not mean you age out of the Bible. We are supposed to sharpen one another. Now, I'm also, along with my wife, a community group leader in our fellowship. Now, I'm not going to close my eyes and not look at anyone because I'm not directing this to anyone, but some of y'all are not in community groups. Okay, I'm going to open my eyes back up. And that's a problem, not because we need you to carve out another night of the week to show your fidelity to us, but because that is where the true learning happens. You listening to me prattle on, with my alliterated points, is only part of the equation of how we train you, teach you, rebuke you, and correct you. The real learning happens when you discuss the the passages of Scripture that we cover each week with each other, and learn from each other how to apply it to our lives. Now, some of y'all, if you're in my community group, you know I don't talk. Because I talk for four straight hours every day of the week and I'm tired. Because I'm a teacher. But also because, I'll let you in a secret, I don't talk because I want to learn from you. Just because I dedicated my life to studying the Bible to get an advanced degree that's taken me more time than I really want to talk about, to get, does not mean I have all the answers. Some of you have wise things to say to me. Again, I'm not gonna call any of my community group leaders out here, but there are times when one or the two of you get caught up in the spirit, I and my wife would like to call it, and you start preaching a sermon at us and my wife is just over there just, yes! I'll call my wife out, I can embarrass her, she's married to me because we are getting a word from our brother or sister in the group, okay? That is the point of community groups in this church. And if you were not in a community group, let me use this opportunity to say, you need to find one that works in your schedule. We try to have one on as many days of the week and as many locations as we can. If you can't find one, come talk to Jordan or myself and we will figure it out, because it is that important to us that you get into community and discuss the scriptures with one another, okay? Page two, all right, now we can get to page three, all right. The second effect of lingering sin is that we become savage with one another. We are first selfish and then we become savage the shepherd, he says, you have, strengthened, you have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. And the same verses, verses 18 to 19, about muddying the water and trampling the grass also applies here for the sheep. What's interesting to me is that the shepherd is not a ruler in their society. A shepherd, again, we're not maybe familiar with that image. A shepherd is usually a little boy whose job it is to make sure that mommy and daddy's sheep don't fall off the cliff. Many years ago, I was in West Africa and I was visiting a village uh, doing mission, uh, doing, taking evangelistic mission to these villages that had no contact basically with the outside world. They were so far off. You have to get in the Toyota truck and put your hand on the roof because it's bouncing because there is no road. It's just you, you know, going over the little hills and vales, way out in the village. I got to the village and there was no one there. And I mean, no one there, right? There was no men except for one dude. So I'm thinking, okay, everybody's like working in the field. This guy's like the dude, let me talk to him. We go in, we talk to the dude. He's like, oh no, no. You can't talk to me. I'm just the youngest son. What do you mean the youngest son? Well, I'm not the chief, the chief's in this house and I'm not even the chief's son. I'm the chief's brother's youngest son. That's why I'm here. Like I'm through the translator, I'm talking to him. I'm like, I, I am so confused. Maybe I'm losing this in translation somehow. So we get the story, the translator's like, just tell me the story, he tells him the whole story, and then he relates to me, he says, okay, so what happened was, someone had come and stolen all of their cattle, and the older brothers had gone to the market to go find it. They had got, if you like Westerns, cattle wrangled. Right? Someone stole all of their cattle in the night, and they had to go down to the market, go find it before someone bought it and took it away. And he had been left behind because he was considered the least responsible one since he was the child. Child. He was like 30 years old. Okay. That's who the shepherd was in their, like they left him behind because guess what his job was? To watch the cattle. And guess what happened? He didn't watch the cattle good enough. That's why they left him behind. That's the point. The shepherd is like the low man on the totem pole societally. His job is just to watch the sheep. You've got one job, dude, just make sure they don't fall off the cliff. You got that? Okay. Somehow that guy decided he was the king of the sheep and he's just gonna do with them what he wants to. Okay? You ain't the king. God is the king. You're just the shepherd. And you're just the sheep, okay? Now, what's interesting in this passage is that God comes back and he repeats all the things he said about the shepherd and he says, I'm gonna do those things. The shepherd does not, follow with me, strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bandage the injured, bring back the strays or seek the lost. And then God says, I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. The only one he leaves out is, I have to, I have to go back and highlight it in this passage: Heal the sick in that passage. But everything the evil shepherd, the wicked shepherd did not do, God says, I'm gonna come and do. Why? That's the job. The job is to do those things. That's your job, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna dive into those. I'm gonna give you another alliterative serious because I just can't help myself. I'm sorry. This is my problem. I alliterate everything as my wife knows. Strengthen the sheep is to reassure them. We look at that passage throughout scripture in Job 4 verse 3, Isaiah 35 3 and Hebrews 12 12. Strengthening the weak is to bring assurance to those who are unstable. That is the point of church. That is why we meet once a week. That is why we have community groups. That is why we check in on each other. Because sometimes it gets real hard to live in this world. And sometimes we're not sure that even God loves us anymore. And I don't know exactly what that feels like is like for you, but for me, that was my eighth grade year. When I was in eighth grade, my grandfather died. Three months later, my best friend shot the back of her head out. Two months later after that, a girl I had been in class with since I was in kindergarten shot her head out. And I wasn't sure that God loved any of us anymore. If you have seen Forrest Gump, there is the scene in which Lieutenant Dan screams at the storm and tells God what he thinks of him. That was eighth grade for me. It got so bad that the school district psychologist had a meeting with my parents because they thought I was going to be number three on the suicide watch. Okay? And in that year, I met God in a way that is so powerfully real that I stand here with you today. When I say that God saved me in the eighth grade, I don't mean that he saved me for my sins. That occurred at the cross many years ago. I mean that he pulled me out of that darkness so that I can be alive with you today, so that I can be the husband to my beautiful wife, that I can be a father to my child, and that I can be here teaching you of the mercy and grace and faithfulness of the Lord. That's what I mean by he saved me in the eighth grade. So that is what church is for, but if we're just coming around and stomping on everybody around us, you're not getting that from the church. I'm to try to keep it short, so I'm gonna keep moving. Okay. The second one was heal the sick. Now we're talking about restoration. This occurs also in Psalm 41.3, Hosea 5.13, and many, 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 many times in the New Testament. In fact, I think that's the funny part, is God says there were five things against the shepherd. He mentions four of them that he's going to do. God does not forget, but he's like, oh, heals the sick. I forgot to say heals the sick. Well, I'm gonna have to do that because it's like every chapter of the Gospels is Jesus heals the sick and Jesus heals the sick and Jesus heals the sick and Jesus heals the sick. And he's like, guess what? Do you know who I am? I'm that guy from Ezekiel 34, hello. And do you know who really didn't like Jesus saying that kind of thing? The religious leaders who were the bad shepherds because they got the message and they knew what he was saying. Right? Jesus says a lot of crazy things that we miss culturally. Right? He's like, my favorite one is like, before Abraham was, I was. Except he didn't say I was. He says I am. Like, before Abraham was, you know, like 2,000 something years ago, I was there. Before him. Just like I am right now. That's Crazy! Right? Because he's saying that he's God. And they get it because the next verse says, and they picked up stones to kill him. Right? Everyone's like precious moments, Jesus, sitting with the lamb and soft focus on their... Jesus is... He is wild. W-Y-L-D, wild. He says some crazy things. Which brings us back to braiding the whip. Who is the whip taken to? those that were getting in the way of the weak ones of Israel. When he he brandishes the whip and flips over tables, he's flipping them over because the court they're in is the only place that some people can go in the temple. They're not allowed to get any closer in the temple. And you doing your business where they're supposed to be praying, Jesus gets mad at that. Sorry, I was off topic. All right, so bandages, the injured. My wife is looking at me like. (laughs) Bandages, the injured is about repair. I had to keep my R so that one doesn't make sense. Now, what's interesting here is that the word here for injured actually is, and this is my Hebrew, this is your Hebrew word of the day, is in the nifal conjugation. Nifal is the intensive conjugation in Hebrew means whatever you take, you make it extra, okay? You like extra hot Cheetos, that's the nifal Cheetos, okay? So the word here's not broken. The word is shattered, right? Now, I don't know if you've shattered a bone before. I met a friend in high school, and we were on a ski trip. And she was skiing down the slope and the snowboarder came behind her a little bit too fast, caught the back of her ski, ski whips all the way around and her lower leg just breaks into a thousand pieces. She becomes a cyborg. They have to put a titanium rod in place of her leg because she ain't got no leg anymore. I mean, she's got a leg, but you know, the bone is gone, gone, shattered. That's what Jesus does. Some of you, I don't know, I'm pretty sure, have been shattered. And you have never been put back together again. And nothing in this world is going to repair the wounds that you have. Shattered. And you are limping along like everything is fine. Because when your leg breaks as a sheep, that's death. Death unless the shepherd comes. Let me say that again, because I don't know if you heard me. When your leg breaks as a sheep, you are dead until the shepherd comes. And the shepherd is supposed to bandage the injured. That's what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to repair what we can repair. Because God is the one who actually does the repairing. We're just the ones like the nurse handing him the scalpel. We just, that's our job. I'm not sure if that's what the church looks like at large these days, is what I'm saying. Bring back the strays. This is talking about a return. We see it in Matthew chapters 18 through 12. And what's interesting is that this is actually the only part that was actually commanded of the five accusations. In Exodus 23, 4 and Deuteronomy 22, 1, it says to you, if you see your neighbor's animal wandering around, you are required to bring it back. Okay? You wake up one day and there's a cow in your yard. (laughs) That's not my cow. You go look and you're like, yep, that's Jim's cow. You are required by the law of God to take back the cow. And that seems silly to us. But that is what we might have thought of as a windfall. Right? Because it might not be a cow in our society. It might be a bag of money. It might be an opportunity. It might be honor or glory that belongs to another you are required to bring it back to get it to the right place now what's interesting about that is that that is what sheep do what causes them to be weak what causes them to be sick what causes them to be injured what causes them to be lost is that they stray right that we we get a little bit off the beam now, I told you that we, we tend to measure on the minors in our day. What I want to say about that is, we need to know where the boundaries are. Right? There, there could be a lot of discussion about what we're going to do with this, that, or the other thing in our world. The Bible does not give us every detail, which I think is also fascinating. If you read the book of Leviticus, Leviticus tells you everything you have to do about your, it's the owner's manual for your life as an Israelite. It's like if you have mold on your wall, it's like, go to page 17. All right, three three doves, okay. Hyssop, yep. Get some water, all right, got it. Okay, kill the burn, hyssop in the water, sprinkle. It tells you how to get mildew out of your kitchen sink, okay? But it doesn't tell us how we're supposed to live with people we don't like. Or does it? Because it tells us, to be ambassadors of the gospel and to preach the word in season and out of season. So it tells us where the boundaries are. It tells us what our purpose is. It just doesn't tell us whether we're supposed to go to college or not. Okay? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with asking the Lord to give you a sign and a vision about that. I'm saying that you need to major in the majors. And all those minor details are going to fall into place. That said, when someone gets a little bit close to the electric fence into to the boundary of the gospel, we need to bring them back. Whoa, 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 whoa. The book says we're not supposed to go over there. Okay, come on back. Let's go back to the book and let's look at what the book says and let's talk about it, right? Because you can get close to the electric fence, that's fine. Touch the electric fence, not so good. Cross the electric fence, really bad. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And finally, seek the lost. And this, of course, is about rescue. Now, again, this is what we see in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 16 that they did not seek the lost. I think that's so fascinating when you think about in terms of the Israelite system of the king and the priest, right? They didn't have what we would think of as evangelism built into their system. In fact, the opposite was possibly true. And all of them got confused about that because they thought they were God's chosen people. And not only are we God's chosen people, I'm God's chosen from God's chosen people because I'm the priest, and God's saying to them, no, 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 no. You're not supposed to just sit up in the temple. You're supposed to go seek the lost, right? There's in fact a whole book in the scripture that God gives us about a guy who gets real mad at God when God goes to, tells him to go seek the lost. That book is called Jonah. It's funny. It's really hilarious if you read it, right? Because Jonah is having a pity party for four chapters, I don't want to go to the Ninevites. I don't want to. And he goes, and his message, I love it. His message was, God's going to kill all of you. Right? Like thats He's like, fine, God, I'll do it. God said, he's going to kill all of you. I'm done, boom. And like a thousand people get saved. Right? The whole town gets saved. This giant city gets saved when he's like, you're all going to die up there. Right? Like. So funny to me. And what does he do? He's like, I knew that was going to happen because you're a God of mercy and grace and love. Well, I didn't want to go in the first place. That's us. We're so mad at God for telling us to go and save someone made in his image, loved by him from before the creation of the world, we mad at that. I'm getting heated up here, I'm sorry. Okay. We must be agents of the repair, the reassurance, the rescue, the restoration, and the return. So often, we are willing to say to each other, to those of a different political persuasion, to those of a different denominational identity, to those of a different opinion about some social or cultural matter, don't let the door hit you on your way out. And yet, In John 10, verses 7 through 9, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He uses another image, which I think is really funny here. He says, I am the good shepherd, my sheep know my voice. I am the door by which they come in and out. So you just told people to let Jesus hit them on the way out. Jesus doesn't hit people. That's not what Jesus' business is. Jesus is not about slamming the door in people's face. Jesus is about being the door that is always open for us to enter. Right, that's an image we miss in Revelation, right? In Revelation chapter 22, it says that the city of God comes and descends on earth and God dwells in the city with his people and there are no gates to the city. And what's funny about that is that if you actually read in the context, like the hell that we are so convinced of in this world is the world, by the way, remember, right? The city of God comes down and the rest of the world turns into hell. This is where some of y'all wanna live, is what I'm saying. You're too fascinated with this world, right? You're you're, you're living the part that's about to be hell. And the people in hell can come into the city whenever they want to, because there's no gate. There's no one stopping them. They just don't want to. Why? Because they have been convinced that this God who dwells in this city with his people is not for them. Who told them that? Who told them that you were not welcome in God's house? It wasn't Jesus. All right, let's keep going. Sorry, I'm going too old. We are selfish, we are savage, so we are scattered. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food on all, of all the wild animals in the hills. They began went astray on the, all the mountains of the hills. They were scattered over the whole face of the earth. They've pushed with their fank and, flank and shoulder and butted with all the weak ones with their horns until you have scattered them all over. It is, both the, it is both the consequence of both the shepherd and the sheep that we are scattered. We have a tendency to want to scatter each other. People get in our way. People are bothersome to us. Now the images here of those three things, they are food for all the wild animals, they are astray on every high place, and they are scattered on the whole earth, are very common images that we see in the Old Testament. And the image of food for the wild animals in Deuteronomy 28, 26, Jeremiah 7, 33, 16, 4, 19, 7, and 34, 20, Jeremiah says it a lot, is an image of judgment. To be food for the wild animals means that you are being punished for what you have done. And those that found them devoured them. Their adversaries, say, their adversaries said, but we are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their right, against their righteous grazing land, against the hope of, the, of their ancestors, and against the Lord." The nations that came upon Israel and Judah did so because Israel and Judah forgot who they were to worship and serve. That's what God says. I've sent the Ninevites. I have sent the Assyrians. I have sent the Babylonians against you because you have forgotten who I am. But I'm going to judge them too because they came against my holy people. Does that blow your mind a little bit? That God sends the judgment, but he also judges those who are the judgment that he sent. Because God's going to be in control. God's God's got a plan. They are astray on every high heel. That is, sorry, that's my southern accent coming out. High hill, that is an image of idolatry. And again, this is interesting because this is the passage that Jesus picks up and flips over the other way. In, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, which we already referred to before, he says, if someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? At the hillside in ancient cultures was where you went to worship God, right? Cause you know, it's like they say in Texas, the higher the, hill, the, higher the hair, the closer to God. You got to get up to get to God, right? So you went to the top of the mountain to get to God. Jerusalem, by the way, is built on the top of a mountain because it's closer to God. And the temple of the city is on the top of the hill, right? Even God's like, yeah, I'm up here, bro. Hi. And so what's interesting about that is Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. Like there's one who's not up on the hill worshiping me. Now up on my hill, he's on somebody else's hill. He's somewhere far off. He's wandering, he's stray. I'm gonna go get him, right? In Ezekiel, God leaves the temple at the beginning of the book. And Ezekiel sees it in a vision. He sees God pick up his, his majestic throne from the middle of the, the temple and leave and go back up to heaven. And Ezekiel's like, "Why, God, why are you leaving us? Don't leave us, God. And, his, and God says, well, look and see what's happened. Because what's happened is the people have come up to the holy temple and they've turned their back on God, literally. Because so they've turned and faced the east. The gate of the, the temple faced east so that you could see the rising sun as you entered into the temple, right? So this, the glory of the sun hit would hit the temple and reflect back to you and represent God's glory. But what the people did is they went, yeah, I don't want to worship you, I'll worship this one over here, I'm going to worship the sun itself. How often do we worship the reflection, the poor imitation of what God is? Because it's mm, more palatable, more convenient, more comfortable. It doesn't ask so much of us. It isn't so demanding as the king and creator of the whole universe. You know what I'm saying? Doesn't have as many rules. Doesn't push us to go talk to those people we didn't want to go talk to. Doesn't require anything to us. Again, I have nothing against precious moments Jesus. But precious moments Jesus didn't die on the cross for you. Right? Jesus, the king of heaven, the incarnate son of God, the one who goes to seek the lost and leaves his own temple to do so. He's the one that saved you. Not the one that's palatable to you. Scattered over the whole earth is the last image. That's the image of exile. The first time we see that image is in Genesis 11. When the people say, let us build a tower up to the high heavens so that we may be like God. And God's like, (laughs) funny story, bro. Bam, thousands of language. Try to build a tower with that. Like I told you, God is funny. If, you, if, not, if you're not reading the Bible and you're laughing sometimes, you're not getting the jokes. God is funny. <clears throat> but that's what God does. He scatters us into exile. But he doesn't leave us there. We are called to scatter to be regathered. Right? You know what's the interesting thing about the exile for Israel? They worship God in those exiled places. And then those exiled people who thought they weren't part of the covenant started streaming into Jerusalem, right? Right? Well, that was the funny thing about Jonah, right? He goes and he tells the Ninevites and the Ninevites decide they're gonna worship God and he gets mad at that. he goes and pouts, Right? At the end of the book, God says, don't you love these people? Don't you see that these people were dying without me and I brought them back? I used you to bring them back. Aren't you happy about that? No, I'm not happy about that. We are scattered to regather. I, I'm going to venture to say, I don't know everyone's you know, deep genealogy. I haven't done the 23 and me and the, you know, Heredity.com on you. But most of you sitting here are the recipients of a grace of those who were scattered across the whole earth in church history. Right? Because there's a second, sorry, so God scatters everyone in Israel, they go to the nations, the nations start worshiping, they come back. In Acts chapter two, all of those nations come to Jerusalem to worship at Pentecost and the church is hiding up in a little room. And what does God do? I have a message for you. He gives them the gifts of speech in all of those languages. And they start preaching the gospel to all these people. These people are like, that's it, that's what I came here for. That's what I was looking for, right? Because they've met God. You think, okay, they got the message. Now we're going to go out to the nations. What do they do? For five more chapters, they stay in Jerusalem. Sound familiar? Stay where we're comfortable. Stay where there's not persecution. Stay where it's not hard. Stay where it's easy. Don't take the gospel anywhere where it might be challenged. Stay in our precious moments, Jesus. I'm coming for you if you have precious moments in your house, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not trying to do that, but I'm saying. But chapters later, what does God do? He brings, this is, oh, y'all, you better buckle your seatbelt for this. He brings persecution on the church in the form of Saul. Right? So they are scattered to the nations to take the gospel to all those peoples they were supposed to go to. And then, and then, he turns the persecutor into the chief evangelist. That's crazy. But guess what? God is calling you to something crazy. He's calling you. To gather each other. In my notes, I wrote it with the the crossed out. I gathered, we must gather with each other, and I crossed out with. Because when I first wrote it, we must gather with each other. Like we must collect each other again. I thought, no, 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 no. That's not it. We need to gather each other. It's more active. We need to be going out and pulling people in. This is a good news that we should be telling people about. Right? We need to be excited about it. Right? And we must guard the faith, but not our faction. So again, the, the sort of motivation of this sermon was that I'm gotten real tired of people who call themselves Christians screaming at each other about who's the better Christian. Real tired. And I'm real tired of Christians pointing fingers at other Christians and saying all sorts of wicked things about each other because it makes them feel better. I'm real tired of that. Okay? We are called to guard the faith, not our faction. We are not, to, we're not called to guard America or our political party, or whether we view this, that, or the other thing, whether we put our left shoe or our first shoe on right, that is not the point of the Bible. You are called to guard the faith. The beauty of the gospel is that it be comprehended by a child. The gospel first entered my life through the the witness and testimony of my godly parents and through the witness and testimony of those godly members of the church that I grew up in when I was six years old. When I was six years old, I understood that I needed Jesus. It then took me seven more years till I was in the eighth grade to figure out what that meant. It took me probably another seven to 10 years again before that was tested in my life. And every so, I've luckily gotten off the seven, because after three times, I was like, I got it. Okay, I got it. We don't have to bring the test every seven years. I got it. But that faith which the six year old Andrew could understand, I am still trying to figure out today. You don't have to have all the answers, is what I'm saying. You're not called to be the systematician who gets it all and dies it all up with the note. Do not be afraid of that. You are called to bear witness to the truth to which you have seen, to the hope that you have, to the faith handed down to you from the Lord. That's all. You got that part, you understand that part, that's all you got to go. All those other questions, then we go, well, we're just going to have to go consult the book on that. Right? Okay. Now, the last part I think is funny because it's we were selfish, we were savage. We were scattered, but we have been searched. But that's the problem. The shepherd didn't go search for those that were savaging and selfishly scattering each other. He let the sheep go away. He forgot what his job was. And there was no one searching or seeking for them because my shepherds do not search for my flock. And again, there's nothing here, there's no parallel here for the sheep because the sheep, their job is not to search. Their job is to follow. Right? They're not, we're not responsible for doing that, but those who are leaders are. But this is what the Lord says. See, I myself will search for my flock and I will look for them. And what's funny about this, and I'm just gonna read it to you, he talks about the three. those three judgments, right? The, the judgment, the idolatry and the exile and the last passage. And he refers to all three of those in the way he searches them. For I will look for my flock and I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered. I will bring them back from the nations and the peoples and bring them back to their own soil, exile. And on to the mountains of Israel and the ravines and all inhabited places, I will shepherd them, not the idols. God is going to search and bring back All of us, that is what the Holy Spirit does. He's pulling and tugging on all of us to return. The parable of the prodigal son is about us. Because we're the ones who thought, I got it. I don't need you, God. Just give me your stuff and I'm gonna go and be happy on my own. Did not go well for us. And we go back and we're like, okay, God's not going to love us anymore. That's fine. I mean, I've done too many things for God to love me back. And what is God doing? He's looking out the window waiting for you. And then he goes running down the hill to get you. And again, that's the cultural image we've got. No, right? Parents in these cultures, and even today in our culture, parents do not subjugate themselves to their children. We have honor and shame, and we're not going to break that honor. We are too proud to humiliate ourselves in front of our children. But God is not too proud to humiliate himself. As it says in Philippians 2, Jesus, being in the very image of God, possessing all of the glory of the Father, humbled himself to the point of death as a slave on the cross. You can't get more humiliated than Jesus so go ahead and try. You're never going to outhumiliate humiliate yourself, so don't be worried about that. Right? We must search for the lost. For those who are under judgment by our society, by the pretenses of our religion, of the culture that we live in, and most sadly, by our own judgmental attitudes. We must seek the lost who are caught in sin. Because we were caught in sin once. Maybe you just didn't know how tangled you were. Right? At six years old, some of you are going, well, you probably didn't know how much of a sinner you were. And like, I guess that's good, right? Because don't have to... I mean, don't get yourself more tangled than you need to be, Right? So as soon as you're like, I need help, I'm tangled, that's when the rescuer needs to come, right? So if you're tangled in sin, don't feel like you need to just, you know, as it says in Romans, don't feel like you need to fill up sin so that grace can abound all the much more. Just come on back. We must search for the lost in exile. And those who've been scattered by this world. So there are two roles in the church, the shepherd and the sheep, and there are four effects of this lingering sin in our community. We were, sav- we were selfish, we were savage, we were scattered, and we needed to be searched for. And the passage teaches us that we must be on guard We must tend the flock and care for one another. We must be agents of reassurance, restoration, return, repair, and rescue. We must gather each other and guard the faith. And we must search for the lost. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a God who searches for us. You are not a God who is so high and exalted and above us that your honor and your glory are threatened by humiliating yourself. In fact, you are a God who fills up all of reality for you have come to be with us. You sought to dwell among us in the tabernacle and the temple. And then you took on humanity to dwell with us. And then you sent your spirit, your own self, to live in us. We thank you, Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are a God who searches for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would search out our own hearts and root out the selfishness and the savagery that dwells within us because of this body of sin. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be agents and ministers of your gospel in this world. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give...